take out your Bible and turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. We'll be finishing the chapter today. If you kind of scan back through the previous verses, which we talked about last week, um, one of the major points that I brought up was just the fact that God's character never changed. Right, despite all of the reflections of disobedience in their own people, uh, their own unfaithfulness, God never changed. He remained righteous. In fact, verse 8 highlights that. You have kept your promise for you are righteous. Okay, uh, The people complained, they rebelled, they stiffened their neck, the text says. Nevertheless, that was the key word from last week, God is gracious. God is merciful. He is abounding in steadfast love. He still hears. He still sees. And He still rescues His people. And these are wonderful things because He's made them a promise and He will not forsake them. That's repeated several times in the text of chapter 9 so far. It says He will not forsake them or He has not forsaken them. And that same kind of sentiment is repeated in these last few verses of chapter 9 that we're going to read. And as the chapter draws to a close, we're going to read verse 32 through 38. I just want you to notice something. Notice how reflecting on who God is, which we did last week, which the rest of chapter 9 is about. Reflecting on who God is and reflecting on who they are as a people, it stirs them up to do something. And that's why the, the, the title of the sermon today is Time to Make a Decision. Because this was the point where they were at. They've reflected on who God is, their own sinfulness. Now they had a decision to make. Okay, and we're going to see that uh, really at the end of the chapter and into 10. But let's read starting in verse 32 today, and then we'll ask the Lord to bless our time together in the Word. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people, since the time of the kings of Assyria and to this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your own, your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we're slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you've set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed documents are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Let's pray. Lord, there's certainly a lot of correlation that we can draw here between the people of old in Jerusalem and our own lives, our own society. Uh, help us, Lord, to have a really clear and balanced view 
of what it is that you want us to see because if we tip too far in several different directions, Lord, we're going to be just unbalanced and, and really unfit for the, the, the tasks that you've called us to. And so I pray that we would, uh, as the, the acronym AWANA stands for, that we would be approved workmen who are not ashamed of your word and to speak it boldly to a, a dark surrounding culture. Lord, may we be the light, not because we have it within us just naturally, Lord, but because we're reflecting the light of Christ through the Spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come to the end of chapter 9, right? And the people have just lengthy recounting of their history, of their sinfulness, of really the, the cycles. We talked about those a couple of weeks ago. These cycles of sin and despair versus cycles of enjoying reading the Word of God and being close to Him, that sort of thing. We just see their their, their history is littered with these things. And the author points back to the prophets and how they were persecuted and even killed. He talks about the judges and how God would raise up people to deliver them. And then it wouldn't be long and the cycle would start over and they'd disobey and walk away from the Lord. And so we see these destructive cycles in the, in the people of God. And yet the text also, up to this point, tells us another cycle of God's enduring faithfulness. And I love that first verse that we read together. Uh, just the, the terms that are used to describe who God is. If in your prayer time, you're looking for a good way to start, right here, use, use this verse as, a, as a, a springboard into who God is. He says, our God, in verse 32, the great, the mighty the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. That's a great depiction. That's a great description of who God really is, isn't it? I mean, even as we go down, and we'll talk about this, even as he says, even when everything was set up for our people to do well, they still rebelled, and yet you did not change. You've kept steadfast love. These are these are really important things to acknowledge before the Lord, about the Lord. He says, even despite the discipline, even despite the hardships that uh, are coming in, the, in what he's going to say, the people recognize these things about God. And so I think it's important for us, because I don't know what you're walking through in life, in your, in your job, in your relationships, whatever it might be. Um, you may feel that it's a hardship. Even in those hardships, we could acknowledge these things about God. We could acknowledge that he is faithful in his steadfast love. He keeps his covenant. He never lets it down. Then the author says, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us. As I read that this week, I was just reflecting on my time as a dad a little bit. And uh, as, as a parent... We tell our kids to do things. We give them instructions, right? That's good. And so we've, Nikki and I have given our kids instructions. I'll just give you a for instance, like, hey, it's time to clean your room. Parents, if you've ever done this, I don't know if you get the same response that I get sometimes, but it's like I've asked my child to go pick up the Eiffel Tower, <laughs> right? It's this insert. It, it might be in their room. <clears throat> 
it's like it's this insurmountable task. And sometimes, occasionally, I won't name names, but they just crumble to the floor in tears. And it's like, as, as a dad, I'm thinking, what's wrong with you? Like, I didn't, I didn't ask you to do something you're not capable of. And then they'll say, well, can you help? And oftentimes I will, in my flesh, respond and say, I didn't make that mess. I don't need to help you clean it up. You're capable. Now, I'm grateful that the Lord didn't respond to the people that way, right? Because they're saying, Lord, what has come, what has come upon us has been hard. I don't know that they've crumbled to the ground in tears. Now, to some degree, they have in repentance. But they're saying, Lord, what has come upon us is hard. Let it not seem little to you of everything that's come upon us. Um, it's almost like my kid saying, well, it might not look like that big of a deal to you, but it is to me. And I get that. I've seen their room. Sometimes it is a big deal. But look at verse 32 again. I think we see that sort of thing in the text here. It's not, it's certainly not that God doesn't understand or he can't identify with his people, but in comparison to what we've already acknowledged about God, the greatness, um, the awesomeness of God, the trouble that Israel has endured probably does seem pretty small. Not insignificant, but, but small. And the people there are saying, maybe, Lord, it's not small to us. In their eyes, the hardship and the weariness that they've experienced is a big deal. And so they, they appeal to God who they believe actually cares about them. And they care. He, care, they, he cares about that sort of a thing. And so when they say, let it not look like a small thing of what's happened to us, they, they don't say it to a, a God who they think doesn't care, but to one who obviously does. And they say, they admit again here, they say, look, it's been this way, and then they list all of these people, our kings, princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, all of your people, all of God's people, since the time of the kings of Assyria to this day. So they're just going way back, and they're saying, ever since a lot of this trouble started, it's been this way, Lord. We've been experiencing hardships that seem like a big deal to us. Now, he mentions Assyria, and I think there's a good reason for that. The kings of Assyria, uh, in the strictest sense of the word, had kind of been God's discipling instrument, or rather disciplining instrument, over the people of Israel. Um, Isaiah, in chapter 10, verse 5 of his book, actually calls the Assyrian monarchy the, the rod of God's anger. Okay, so it's the, the, the stick that God is using to discipline his people. Um, the people had been given some freedom, right? Uh, the freedom of Ezra and a group to go back and rebuild the temple years before this in Nehemiah. Um, and then now Nehemiah and some other folks coming back to rebuild the walls. Like they're, they've been given some freedom, but at this point in writing, Israel was not an independent nation. They were still under the cap, under captivity to some degree. Now there's freedom within that a little bit. But they were still in the province of the Persian Empire and under the king of Persia's rule. Look at verse 33. It kind of reveals that they don't, 
They don't have a leg to stand on, and they, they, they see it that way. He says, yet you've been righteous in all that's come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we've acted wickedly. I think this is a great picture of true confession, isn't it? True confession. The people realize we have blown it, and yet, God, you've been good in it all. Even, as he says in just a moment, even uh, when he has given them over to other kings, God has acted righteously. I've heard confession can be described as simply agreeing with God about both of these things, about his righteousness and our sin. Confession is just agreeing with God about his righteousness and our sin. I, I think in our day and age, we hear apologies. Maybe we even have given apologies that really lack real responsibility. That's not a real apology a lot of times. But verses 34 and 35 of chapter 9, they don't do it that way. Just I'm going to read through those again. Read with me. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom, even amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. He loved, everybody in, that has ever had some leadership over the people, kings, princes, prophets, all of these guys, fathers, all of them are listed here. And all of them are listed here as missing the mark. You see that? They've, even when it was set up in their favor, they confess, they say, man, we're sitting in the lap of luxury, so to speak, amid God's great goodness, but it didn't cause the people to turn from their wickedness and repent. They're saying, basically what they're saying here, kids, this is a phrase that's good for us to remember, is to say, God, you were right and I was wrong. And that's what they're saying. God, you were right and we were wrong. Now, if we look at this kind of situation with pride in our hearts, we could be tempted to question how the Israelites were so foolish to end up how they did, right? Because we can look and we have the privilege of looking back in history and we can see all of the ways. And I mean, they've reflected on them even though in chapter nine, right? The manna from heaven, the pillar of smoke and fire, the splitting of the Red Sea, their sandals and clothes never wore out in 40 years of walking in the wilderness, all these miraculous events. And yet they, they blew it. In cyclical fashion, they blew it. And we can look and say, I wouldn't do that. And yet, if you took my challenge last week and spent some time and wrote down your own history, or even just thought about it, you can probably look and identify some cycles in your own heart that just match pretty well with Israel's, right? These periods of closeness to God and then apathy and then disobedience and then despair and crying out to God and then renewed hope and, and it's these cycles that we are all too familiar with. Um, when we went through the book of first and second Peter, we talked about how we're living in the age of God's patience. God has not 
judged the world yet, but it's coming. We don't know when that day is coming, when we'll be fully judged, but it's, it's not here yet. And so we're living in this, this area of God, this era of God's patience with opportunities to hear the gospel, to repent, to believe. Nevertheless, we sometimes think we're above those things. We're not as bad as these folks, and we don't need the same kind of deliverance. But look at verse 34. This, this verse explains how we think and behave just like them. Uh, specifically, we've not paid attention to his commandments, and we've not paid attention to his warnings. If you, if you take something that's not yours... You have not paid attention to God's commandments to, to not covet and not steal, right? You've not paid attention enough. If you pursue a relationship outside of marriage, you have not paid attention enough to God's word to not commit adultery. If you don't control your tongue in how you speak and you take the Lord's name in vain, you have not paid attention enough to his commandment not to do that, right? Do you see where I'm going with this? It's a lack of paying attention. It's a lack of heeding the warnings. And time and time again, the people were warned. They were told, in fact, Deuteronomy 32:46 sums it up well. Take to heart all the words by which I'm warning you today. This is Moses speaking that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. He says, take it to heart, all the words that I'm warning you today. Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 7. For I solemnly warned your fathers when I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, warning them persistently, even to this day, saying, obey my voice. These are the warnings that God's people heard. These are the warnings that we still hear because we're still being warned about the same kinds of things. And I think that to some degree we've been deceived in our society to think that you can't warn anybody about anything anymore. So, like, don't tell me I should buckle my seatbelt because I want to live my life my way. Uh, don't tell me I can't drink to excess and get drunk. Who are you to judge me? Don't warn me to honor my marriage vows. You don't know what my spouse is like. And so we can't even warn anybody in a lot of ways for fear of being judgmental. Like, like that's somehow the worst thing you can be called now is judgmental. But imagine if you, if you go to the doctor, right? We, we go to the doctor sometimes. Imagine you go there and they respond to you the way that our society is responding to truth now. So you go and they check you out and they say, well, we found a certain condition, but you know, who am I to tell you how to live your life? So don't worry about it. Just go on how you want. Just live how you want. Now, some of us would like our doctors to say that. Um, maybe they say, well, your levels are really high in this area, which probably means that there could be some hidden underlying issues. But you know what? You should just accept your condition and embrace it and just keep living the way you're living. Imagine if the doctor said that to you. That, that's what society is 
telling us that how we should live and how we should let them live. But if your doctor said that to you, you'd find a new doctor, right? You'd, you'd say, well, I'm not, I'm not here for you to just tell me to keep going. I'm here for you to tell me the problem so it can fix it, right? If, if a, think about this. So if a doctor does warn you about this medical condition, and then you don't take his advice, is that the doctor's fault? Obviously it's not. The doctor warned you, but you didn't pay attention to what the doctor said. Was God to blame for Israel's captivity, for their wandering, for all of the judgment that they received despite his warnings? No. They just didn't pay attention to his warnings, and they were responsible they didn't turn from their wicked works. That's what verse 35 says. And, and what was the result? Look at verse 36 and 37. The result of, of this not paying attention, of not heeding the warnings, was, behold, we're slaves. We're in bondage. We're in captivity. We're not free. So allow me to just quickly connect the dots this morning. Not paying attention to God's words or heeding his warnings always leaves us under the bondage of sin. It always leaves us as slaves. When we, when we don't listen to what the Lord has said, when we don't heed his warnings, it always leaves us in bondage to sin. And the Israelites' history is a sad cycle of disobedience and bondage. Do you know what? Without Christ... That's our story too. Just cycles of disobedience and bondage. But we can't forget, and I want to point out again, where Nehemiah and, and the leaders who are there speaking to the people with him, where, where are they going with all this? Okay, right? They've, they've rehearsed their history. They've brought up all the bad stuff, right? They're not trying to hide it. They're not trying to explain it away. They're not trying to ignore it. They're bringing it all up acknowledging their role in it, repenting of it. They're, and, and, and then they're crying out to the God, the only one who they know can do something about it. Because he, he's the only God who's always kept his promise, who's true and faithful. This is the same response that we need to have today. Right? We acknowledge our past. We acknowledge our sinfulness but we then cry out to the one who we know can do something about it. Recall your own history, and you know quickly the reality that disobedience to God brings about bondage to sin. It's, I don't have to, to prove that to you. You just think about your own life, and it proves it. I think about my past, and it's, it's pretty obvious we can recall our history and we see that it's real, but I, I think we want to, we, we need to see that just as real is 1 Timothy 1.15. It says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So the reality of our sin is there, but this is another reality that we need to embrace as just as much. In our, our small groups, we've been going through uh, a Puritan study and what are the Puritans believe and, and think about different topics. And, and last week, or this past week, it was about revival and awakening and what that looks like and how it, 
how it happens and, and that sort of thing. And it's no surprise that they testify to the truth that revival starts with prayer and with personal repentance. This is a, a, a big thing. And revival is the same today. If we're calling out for God to do a work in our hearts, in our church, in our nation, it has to start with us, right? And it has to start with prayer and with the word of God. And the Puritans understood that and taught that. And so we need to understand that. We need to understand who God is and that understanding him reveals our sinfulness, but it also reveals his mercy to us in Christ. Understanding who God is reveals our sinfulness. Because when you reflect back on verse 32, it's another comparison between God and the people. God is the great, mighty, and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. And they are the people who disobeyed and earned bondage. And there's this contrast there that's just obvious all through chapter 9. But knowing who God is reveals His mercy to us in Christ. The plan from eternity past was uh, for Jesus as the Son of God to stand in the place of sinners in order to reconcile all those who believe to Him as Savior. And the people of Israel are comparing themselves to the law here and they're recognizing how far they fall short. And it drives them back to make a decision and to run back to the arms of the Father, to repent and confess. And as we'll see in chapter 10, they do something about it. They, they write out a formal covenant and sign their name on the line. Today, we compare ourselves really to the same law of Scripture, but it's been perfectly and totally fulfilled in Christ. And when we look at Him, we recognize, just like Israel how far we fall short. And Romans 3.23 rings in our minds, all have fallen short of the glory of God because all have sinned. And we know it's true. But sometimes it, it doesn't drive us to the same place that it drove the Israelites here. See, remember, it drove them back to their refuge, to the, to the God the Father, the one who could forgive and protect and who re- retains the covenant and keeps it. Sometimes, though, we respond with seeing who God is and we say, okay, that's neat, but we respond with apathy. And we just keep on living our lives like it meant nothing. Sometimes we respond with uh, what the Bible considers a grief that leads to death. And I, I think of Judas and his despair. And it doesn't drive us to where we should go. Sometimes... We respond with anger when we see our own sin and, and we're just, sometimes we're just angry that we've sinned again and we, we can't fix it ourselves and it's this, this cycle of, of trying to self-repair that just doesn't ever work. And we just get angry. We can't figure it out on our own. We can't do it ourselves and we want to do it and so it doesn't drive us where we should be driving. The people of Israel in Jerusalem, they respond and they're driven towards repentance and they're driven towards uh, confession. And it's evidenced by what starts in verse 38. Look at that with me. This will continue into the next chapter. Because of all of this, we make a decision. That's what they're saying. 
we make a covenant, a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of the princes, our Levites and our priests. And then we'll talk next week about those names and what it means. But they saw who God was and it drove them not to anger or despair or apathy, but it drove them back into his arms through confession and repentance and faith. They make a promise to walk. If you look down at verse 29 of uh, chapter 10, they make a covenant to walk in God's law, to observe the law and to do it. And, and then they get even more detailed as we'll talk about next week too. And as we consider what we've talked about this morning, just here's a simple question to reflect on, to kind of begin to apply this to our own heart. Is that my desire? When I see who God is truly, the great, the awesome, the God who's, who's faithful and steadfast love, do I, do I say thank you and then keep on living my life the way that I was? Or do I respond as the people of God do? Do I make a decision to do something different? Do I make a decision to do something important and distinct? Is that the desire of my heart? Today is as good a day as any to make that decision, isn't it? Whether it's to put your faith in Christ to start and say, I I see your greatness, I see my own sin, I can't do anything about it, I need somebody to save me. Or whether you've been saved and you've been walking in apathy and you say, okay, Spirit, I hear you this morning, I need to make a decision, do it. Make a covenant with the Lord, renew that relationship with him and say, yeah, God, I I do want to walk in your ways. I don't want to ignore. I want to pay attention to your warnings because these words bring life. It's time to make a decision. And if you'll do what verse 38 says, do like what the people do. If you're ready to enter into that kind of covenant with God through Christ, by the power of the spirit, scripture's clear. God will save you. There's no question. A contrite and humble heart, he will not turn away. When you feel the weight of justice hanging over you, that's very real, don't despair. Look to Christ. John 3.36, this is a, this is a plug for Awana. I learned this verse helping kids learn this verse. John 3.36 talks about how the Son of Uh, The Son of God, when you believe in Him, you have life. But if you don't obey the Son, you don't have life. And the wrath of God remains on you. That, That very real wrath of God remains on you. But in Christ, on the cross, it's it's been taken away. It's been put on him in your place. And so believe, as the words of John 3.36 says, obey the Son and you will have life. Seek the Lord who acts according to his great mercy and forgiveness. Think back to Genesis chapter 4. This was mentioned in our Sunday school class a couple weeks ago. God is speaking to Cain, very graciously speaking to Cain. And he says, Cain... Sin is crouching at your door. And its desire is to rule over you. 
But if you do well, won't you be accepted? You will be accepted is what that means. I think the same is true for us. Sin is crouching at our door. And we don't have to be alive very long to really see that that's the case. It wraps us up in bondage when we're disobedient to the Lord. And yet, God gives us the same assurance. He says, if you do well, if you turn from your sin to the Savior, you will be accepted. And I'll wrap up our time together with just this thought too. When you're accepted by God, He wraps you up tighter than sin ever could. Let's pray. Lord, I, I, I think of my own heart and I think of the, the sin that, that wraps it up regularly. And Lord, I'm convicted this morning. And yet I'm comforted in being reminded from your word uh, that in Christ, you've, you've given us every spiritual blessing. You have removed the curse You have destroyed the barrier. There is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. And you're you're, you're explaining that in your Old Testament way to the people in Jerusalem. Walk in your ways, Lord. That's That's what a Christian's heart truly desires. We may not always practice that perfectly, Lord, but the desire of our heart is to walk in your ways. And so, Lord, I pray for those who know you this morning, who are here and listening. And I pray if they've, if they've slipped and fallen, if they've become apathetic, if they've been in a groove and maybe even a rut, Lord, that they would see and reflect on your great goodness in their life, that it would drive them to repentance and deeper faith, and that they would rely on you. And Lord, if some are listening that have never put their faith truly in you, Lord, I pray that today would be the day they make a decision to follow you. It's not a flippant one. It's not a, well, I feel good in this moment kind of thing. Lord, it's a lifelong commitment, one that you make with us and we make with you. And Lord, you call us then to turn away from sin, to heed your warnings. And so, Lord, I pray repentance for our souls, for our hearts. And that as we turn away from the wrong, that we would turn towards the Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.